Hello and welcome to Season 5 of the Future of Film podcast. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is a show where we share insights and strategies from the pioneers, trailblazers and disruptors who are shaping the future of film. And I'm delighted today to welcome a dear friend of Future of Film, Hazraf Hazdalal. Originally starting his career in VFX, has then transitioned to directing and directed and produced the successful sci-fi indie The Beyond, which he then followed up with another sci-fi feature, 2036 Origin Unknown. Has then moved into uh, directing a major show for Disney, Fastlane, before returning to work on his own independent projects. Farai's career has as continuously innovated, bringing in his, his experience from VFX and gaming into the filmmaking process. And particularly, he's been using real-time game engine and Unreal Engine and virtual production techniques throughout his career. In fact, in the first Future of Film Summit in 2019, has his talk on how he uses these techniques to pitch projects was one of the most successful and highly rated talks on the day. Now he is using real-time game engine and Unreal Engine to direct and produce an entirely animated feature film called Rift with a small remote global team and largely self-financed. In this conversation, Has reveals how he is doing this, the tools and techniques he is using within Unreal Engine and that workflow he has created, and his strategy for retaining independence as a filmmaker in today's media landscape. If you're enjoying the show or just want to find out more, there are a few ways to stay in touch. Firstly, you can subscribe for updates at the home of Future of Film. That's futureoffilm.live. Here you can check out all five seasons of the podcast and dig into other free resources like the Future of Film Report, the Future of Film blog, and also check out the Future of Film Summit. So that's futureoffilm.live. And why not just also hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice to ensure you don't miss another episode of the show we have some amazing guests coming up in season five so be sure to hit subscribe and check out futureoffilm.live and so that just leaves me to say thank you for listening now please enjoy this conversation with the one and only has So, Haz, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Um, happy to be here. Thanks for taking the time. It's great to it's great to catch up. I always enjoy our chats and conversations, um, and it makes sense to record it this time for everyone else. Definitely. Um, so, how have you been? Well, tell me, tell me what you've been, what you're focusing on right now, and then we can sort of jump off from there and and, and talk about some of these bigger issues we've been discussing 
Sure. Like, you know, right now I'm currently deep in production of my third feature film, which this time is a fully animated feature film done in the style of CG anime. And it's being done completely using Unreal Engine and virtual production tools. So like, you know, as I'm speaking to you right now, my other computer is actually rendering and processing shots. So that's how deep in production I am. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's just giant. You're not going to be too distracted by that. Hopefully no, 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 no. It's, all, it's automated. It's automated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, amazing. Right. So you, so you, you, you animation, right. Was that something you always thought you would, move into is because you your first couple your first two features have been live action yeah. with heavy you know vfx and yeah. science fiction kind of uh you know orientation but moving into animation was that something you 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 could foresee you know um the funny thing is my very first short film like way back in 2011 was actually a 2d or two and a half d stroke 3d animated film um, and I remember doing that and I was very naive because, oh yeah, I could do that. And, you know, I'll end up directing, you know, an animated film or a feature. And obviously it's not as easy as that. Um, and I remember speaking to a bunch of like, you know, studios and stuff and they're like, oh, you know, you, it's a different process than becoming a director or a filmmaker doing animation. And also back then you needed huge infrastructure, huge resources, um, you know, if you pitch an animated show, people automatically see, oh my God, that's a lot of money and a lot of resources. And it was, that was true at the time. Um, but, and then that's how I just dived into live action. But it's only like last year, you know, early last year, I started to realize like, you know, we can go into animation now because the tools are accessible. Um, the resources are you know, much more accessible to filmmakers like myself, but also the cost is not as expensive as it was in the conventional way of doing animation and, and also you know i grew up you know watching manga night on channel four you know like mm. you know watching movie you know when they used to play you know, the late night manga of akira ghost in the shell you know pat mm. labor you know cyber city Aweda. i can name a bunch you know i grew up watching animation especially specifically adult animation as well so you know it's always been like a dream of mine to actually do animation and especially when i was in visual effects you know doing previs on movies you, you you're animating cameras you're animating you're blocking but um never thought I'll actually have the opportunity to actually make a full-on animated feature film until most recently, which is very exciting and kind of like, I feel like I'm a kid that's just had his dream come true kind of thing. Oh, amazing. Uh, and so uh, so it, the, the change has been uh, Unreal Engine, right? Is that, is that, is that what's been the, um, yeah. opened this up for you? Def definitely like Unreal Engine, you know, the fact that if I didn't, I think it was like the end of 2019 when I was prepping for my, supposed to be my third live action, you know, I was prepping for that and I want to do some previs and I downloaded Unreal Engine because, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people talk about it and you got to think about it, Alex, when I left the visual effects industry, you know, to go into making features as a director, I'm, I I never thought I'd be like, you know, hands-on on a tool ever again. I'd be like, oh no, we have VFX teams for that. We have artists for that. You know, I'm going to be directing and producing. Um, but the minute I downloaded Unreal Engine, I realized how quickly a director can be very hands-on in experimenting, especially with, you know, when I downloaded Unreal Engine, Alex, it was like version 4.19, you know, and it was on a MacBook Pro. It wasn't on like the PCs that I'm using now with these really cool graphics cards. And I was just doing basic things like, you know, animate the camera, blocking, you know, blocking shots out with characters. But quickly I started to see results that were 
just way better quality than your average previs. And I started to realize, what? Why isn't anyone doing final content stuff? This is like, and it's just me on my computer. And that's when I started to think about the bigger picture and start to think, well, what if I kind of like expand my field out a bit in terms of just like, instead of trying to focus and trying to get all the big TV shows and, and constantly pitching in live action, which competition extremely high, why don't I kind of look into, you know, experiment of animation? And that's kind of when I started to realize, oh my God, there's so much you can do in Unreal Engine. And the fact that Unreal Engine is free, you know, anyone can download it. Anyone who, anyone who wants to try something creative in the world of CG can just download it. And I just was just fascinated and just kind of blown away how easy it was to pick it up and to try things out and get really high quality results out of it. And that's what blew my mind. That's when my production head, my directing head, my just filmmaker head start to realize, whoa, you know, there's a new way of making actual commercial content this way. And during that time, you know, Love, Death and Robots came out and the whole adult animation space started to really blow up because like people were taking animation as a format seriously a much more in a serious mode as opposed to animation being used for like you know the simpsons or ren and stimty or um or arch or you know traditional 2d animation you know adult animation in terms of cg wasn't like being seen as like oh my god we'll watch that until things like love death and robots came out now there's like tons that are in production and um, including mine Hmm. yeah so clearly it gives you a, a lot more control as a as a filmmaker to, yeah. to 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 be able to do this and you you originally started out doing previs for yeah. your 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 live action um and and has that is that a very similar process doing the previs is that a, a similar process and workflow to what you're you're doing now on the animation yeah it kind of is like usually when you do a previs for a movie the previs just used to as a animated storyboard in CG, right? Just to Mm. kind of communicate to all the heads of departments and financiers or anyone that's involved in your project, what what the shots are and for you to see it play out before you go on set. In terms of animation, you that's usually in like the layout stage. So you do your layout, rough blocking or an animatic, right? And then and then you once that's signed off, you then do it for real. In my case, I'm doing the layout pre or certain level of previs um, and blocking. And then once I'm happy with that in the edit, I'm continuing from that point into the final film. I'm not redoing things. In fact, Alex, you know, on this animated film, there isn't any previs because literally we build our we build our characters, we build our environments, put it in a game engine, stick a camera in, we go, we're live, we're, we're ready to go. We start blocking the shots out, and we're there, we're eighty percent there. And then once you've got that in your edit, you're like, oh. Okay, now I need to put some lights in there, or I need to like you know add some flares, or or tweak the animation. You start to become an iterative process, and this whole both this whole process you get in traditional animation, where the layout, animatic, you know, all this pre-production phase kind of gets really, really you know thinner in the you know if you look at it as a chart, and more time is now spent in actual production, and also it's final pixels. What that means is basically you know, the steps of rendering in several passes, then putting it into compositing to get the final shot and in your edit. Well, that's kind of removed because what you see is what you get in terms of what I'm doing in Unreal Engine. You know, what we see in Unreal Engine, we light it, we we block it out. It looks cool. We hit render, 
that's it. It's in the edit. And then we do some color grading. So that, that has kind of like shifted the way we produce animated films. If you're using things like Unreal Engine or even Unity as well. Um, and that, I think that's why I'm able to be able to do this. What sounds crazy. You know, whenever I talk to other, like my other filmmakers, friends from all over the world. And when they're like, Hey, what are you up to? I'm like, Hey, I'm making an animated film. I'm like, Whoa, that's, that's crazy. Like who's the big studio. I'm like, no, it's just my company and a team of wonderful artists I'm collaborating with. We're doing all in Unreal Engine. Everyone's working remote. They're like, what? That's freaking crazy. And then when I break it down and show them what I'm doing, they're like, Oh my God, that is so, that is so cool. That is like, that makes sense. I can see why, how you're able to pull this off. Um, so yeah, so pretty much like my previous education was kind of got me to be more comfortable with CG cameras and how I'm able to like do this very fast. Yeah. And I was going to ask, you know, you mentioned we, so to tell me about the team on your, your latest projects. Well, how, how big is that team and how do you work together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my core team at, at the moment is like I've got my CG supervisor, Andrea Tetechi. Now, Andrea has worked with me since 2015 on one of my short films. And it's great to be able to work with someone and see them grow as an artist. Like he was a junior artist at a place called Scape Studios, where I shot one of my short films called Sync over there. And he was like, you know, when you're a junior, you're like, hey, can I help you in your film? You know, I'll do some stuff in my spare time. And he did, he helped me out on my short. And then um, when I came to my features, I hired him. And now he's like the CG supervisor. He's kind of telling me what to do in terms of CG, which is amazing. So for me, it's very important to have that, wouldn't say loyalty, but it's more of like you grow with a team, a core team of people that you work with that you have a second, you have a, you have a secondhand language of them where, where they know what you like as a filmmaker. Like Andrea would never show me a CG asset or an environment build or CG without knowing that, oh, has one approved that or he won't get excited about it because I've worked with him so many years. So, you know, I've got Andrea and we have Ronan Aitan who worked with me on my first Unreal Engine project, um, Battle Suits, and he's more of like our technical pipeline supervisor. And then Reese, and then we, we have other artists we bring in. So we have our core team of like three people, including myself, um, as the core. Um, and then, you know, recently we brought on someone else called um, Gabriella, who funny enough we, we actually met on the virtual production facebook group who you know i was a huge fan of what she was doing with motion capture you know with the xn's mocap inertia suits you know based in florida you know in our, in our home she's doing all this amazing stuff um and she was a fan of my work so it just shows you, you know, how virtual production has created this like community of people that just reach out to each other and say hey we'd love to help you out in your project we'd love to work so yeah we recently hired her to come on and do a lot of the mocap for us and then we've got other artists that we bring in all over the world who like you know that that will build characters that will build environments but what's been really good about building the team is you know apart from gabriella who is specific for motion capture and performance capture everyone else on the team are generalists you know they can light they can animate they can build assets and i find that process of putting a team together where you put in a team of generalists really helps a production like this because they stay on right through to the end of the project you know for, for a project like this where it's independently homegrown you know it's it's financed independently as well you don't want to be in a position where you're you have a a high turnover of people coming and going because, you know, you kind of want to keep the team kind of nimble right through to the end. And I find hiring generalists 
is is amazing because like they're just doing so many things on the film. No one gets bored on the production, which is why everyone just wants to, to stay on and see how long this goes for to the end. Um, so yeah, that's that's yeah. so our team's about five at the moment. Um and it's gonna ramp up as as we get closer to like shot finishing and shot polishing. Yeah, oh, it's so different, right? To yeah. the uh, the old, the old, uh, the old <laughs> pipeline where you just people come and they come and go, right. and you know, no one really knows has a, has a handle on what what the overall product yeah. is. Perhaps, perhaps you know, from, apart from you and uh, the, the producers, but ownership, ownership yeah. as well, Alex. That's the big thing for me. Is like you know, I used when I worked in visual effects and I was a compositor, and I remember like starting out compositing. I was rotoscoping, and I did roto on, on like a few shots and then by the time you get to the finished thing you're like oh what did i do on this again oh i did the roto or like a 3d artist oh i built the tree that's all the way in the background that's kind of out of focus yeah that's my tree and yeah that's cool and everything is your part of the big <laughs> pipeline process but with something like this especially with things like unreal engine where it's real time you can have shared workspaces and all of that stuff the collaboration means that the artists have a sense of ownership you're like, yeah you know that's that's my sequence you know I, I put this thing together and and there is a level of motivation involved with that you know there's like an incentive having that sense of ownership and i find the quality of the work that you get out of the artists and collaborators are so much more higher than if you were just you know forgive using the term cog in the wheel yeah and to, to give us a bit of an insight into the actual, um, like a sort of, you know, example of um, putting together a scene in, in, for, sure. for an animate, animation in, um, in, a, in a game engine. So you're, yeah. so, you, you, so you say you're having a, I don't know, a shootout. <laughs> in a, in a, your, your movies often involve shootouts. That's, um, in a in a corridor, say. I mean, what, tell me, what do you how what 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 steps do you go to? Do you create the corridor first, and and yeah. sort of yeah yeah absolutely. What what we do on on this movie and probably on all the other stuff I'm going to be doing in Unreal is we focus a lot of the time building the environment. So we build out. So one of the things that I do as a director is I go through my script, I break down the script and say, okay, these are all the environments we need to do. You know, the funny thing is Alex, like directing, especially when you're putting an anim- breaking down a scene for an animation, there's a lot of use of spreadsheets. I know, right? Weird, but there's a lot of Excel spreadsheets involved. <laughs> so I'll, you know, I'll break down all the environments we need and we kind of see, oh, how many times this environment gets used. And the ones that get used the most is when we start building first. And in our case, you know, for the sake of this conversation, it's the corridor. So we build the corridor um, and then we build our characters. Now, the interesting thing is we build our characters to a point where they look good enough to start blocking. But then as, as we're animating, the characters get updated constantly. And it because it's real-time game engine, it populates all the scenes automatically, right? If you change the hair, all the scenes with that character's hair will change automatically, which is amazing. Um, so once we have, the, we have the characters, we have our um, environments, um, we, I start just putting like the characters in position with the camera, you know, no animation, just blocking out what the shots are. And then we start looking to the motion capture library and see what we have. So if our characters walking down the corridor and pulling the gun and aiming, then we look in our motion capture library and we have tons of mocap packs that we've purchased over the year or so. And we see what we have. Or if there's something specific, I'll then send it, shoot um, an email to Gabriella with a clip of the shot that I've blocked out and say, hey, I need a shot of the character walking. And within 24 hours, Gabriella's done several versions of the shot. Um, oh, by the way, a big step is I would send the scene 
or the characters package in an Unreal Engine scene over to Gabriella. So when she's doing her mocap, she can see the character moving. And then what she sends back to me isn't motion capture data, say. She sends me un over the Unreal Engine animation file. And which means that I just copy paste into my cinematics folder, go into the sequencer timeline and select my character, say apply animation. It's literally like oh, a 45, 60 second step. Wow. Uh, as opposed to back in the day, you can imagine you have to like adjust the rig, bring the mocap in, you know, do some cleanup and all that, all that stuff removed. Um, once I've got that in there, I then start lighting the shots um, to, to a point where I can see the characters and the shadows fall out. And then I just render out as an EXR sequence. So an EXR is a high quality um, format frame, which is uncompressed. It's 16 bit with a lot of color depth. I export that out, bring that into my DaVinci Resolve, which I use for editing and color grading and everything post related. And um, I put that in there, apply a temp look grade, and it's in my edit, done. And huh. I do that for every single shot, <laughs> pretty huh. much. Huh. And then, and then, uh, then you, you you compile your shots, and then you you would then edit, or do you edit as you go along, or how I do you edit as I go along? I wow. totally edit, and that's the yeah. beauty of doing this stuff. Is like you know, I have my edit open, I've got Unreal Engine open, I'd animate my shot, render it out, bring it into my edit, see how it seems. Sees if I want to adjust something, go back into Unreal and do it. Um, it's so important. I find like as a director, I always edit my own stuff. You know, the only stuff I didn't edit was obviously the huge Disney show that I directed, Fast Lane, because that's a big studio. Uh, but even at that point, I still edited my own animatics or my own previs, and I was very heavily in in editorial. And I find, you know, for animation, you know, usually when you do when you go on live action shoot, you do a shot list, right? You say, yeah, these are my shot coverage. I'm going to shoot for the day. You share it your first AD, and you go and shoot it. Um, with animation. You know, you obviously you have a, a shot list, you know, you know what shots you want to do for coverage, but you're kind of going in there and blocking all the shots out, like in real time, like you're on a real set, like finding your shots and then you'll put it in the edit and you build your shot list editorially. So there isn't any wastage. Like I would never animate a shot that wouldn't make it into the edit. Firstly, it's a waste of time. But second, you kind of want to know what the shot is before you animate it, right? Well, as opposed to live action, you've got your camera, you're finding your shot, and then you shoot a bunch of stuff. Not A lot of it don't go make it in the cut, right? Because it's just an additional coverage that you've, you've shot in the camera. Whereas with animation, it's so editorial driven. And, I always, and I'm thankful that I have an editorial background. And I think editorially because every shot I do, and when you see the sequences, it's, it's really well thought out in terms of like what shot coverage, what the pacing is. And that's because I'm editing and animating at the same time. It's probably why we're able to get so much done in so little time as well. Yeah, so so much more efficient. Yeah, well, well, um, yeah I mean, in terms of timing, what, how, how long do you, for this current project, how, how long do you estimate that whole well, this is this is going to be the nuts thing. Whenever people ask us this, especially like financiers, they go, "Well, so how long? Do, how long are we talking? We're talking two years?" I'm like, "No, we 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 are estimated to deliver a completed picture by October this year." And bear in mind, we only started pre-production December. Like, wow. Yeah, um, and we've already done like 20 minutes of the film. We recently did a 10 minute screener where it's like a polished version with sound, with with scratch voices recorded from really talented video game voice actors that yeah, we hired. It looks great. It looks great. Oh yeah, you've seen it. Of Thank course, you. I sent it to you. Yeah. <laughs> you can only talk about it, but you can't show it. There you yeah. go. <laughs> um, yeah, that was exclusive just for you, Alex. Um, but no, um, 
we did that and we because we felt it was very important to start the the business side of things while we we're in production as well because at the end of the day this is a commercial entity so we did the first 10 minutes and a lot of distributors we're talking to a lot of streamers that we're talking to other financiers that we're talking to and also some of the big name actors we want to kind of bring on to do the voices later you know they were like, this the script is great. We love all the concept that you're doing. We love some of the tests that you're doing. But what does this actually look like? What does it play out? So we felt we had to do that. And it's it's great to be able to do that because we're able to do that without disrupting our schedule. We were already animating the already in a way. So we had that 10 minutes done. While that was getting you know post-production being done in terms of audio, we were still continuing. So now this is being shown to various distributors. Yeah, to start, whether we're talking pre-sales or whether we're talking straight buyout, but distributors are now able to see the first 10 minutes of the movie, which pretty much sets up the entire movie in a way, and start the negotiation process while we're in production. By the time we land a distributor that, you know, we feel have great synergy and does is perfect or is the right distribution company or streamer for this film, you know, that could take up to July, August. And by that time, we're like, pretty much like 80% there in the film. So that was that again, that's from a business production point of view. We decided to do that, have that 10 minutes. And again, we would never be in that position if it wasn't for the amazing, you know, accessibility of real-time tools and how fast that you get quality output from. Yeah. I would I definitely want to come back to the business side and <laughs> think about how you you just planning all of that and, sure. and what it means. Just just in terms of the um the style, though, because uh, I was yeah. uh, I was one of the things I was really impressed by the the, the the preview was it it doesn't look like the sort of game engine stuff yeah. I've seen before, right? It, it feels yeah. it feels like genuine anime. Yeah. Uh, to tell me about that and for how yeah. that, how difficult that was or how that, thinking that, behind it. Yeah, that Alex, I have to say, was the bane of my life for like from like from December last year. Oh, okay. Basically. What happened was, and I'm glad you, you spotted that actually, because that is probably the thing that took the longest to do was nail the style. So what happened was when I did Battlesuit last year, you know, as my first animated pilot short film, you know, it, people loved it. Obviously they go, oh, this is cool, but we got a lot of backlash as well. Like, you know, I'm gonna be really open here, but like people were like, oh, it's cool has, but it looks like a video game cinematic. Be uh, you know, it's got that, oh, I hate to use that term. It has that Unreal Engine CG look to it. I'm like, oh, okay. And a lot of people that, and you got to think, you know, audiences are much more brutal than they were like yeah. 10 years ago when it comes to CG, right? Because they're so familiar with CG now. Um, and it didn't help that Love, Death and Robots came out as well um, in terms of like people looking, oh, it doesn't look like this or yeah, it feels video gamey. So it, that was something we had to address a lot. And also we realized the minute you start doing CG and you start doing facial capture, and you start using actual real motion capture, you start getting that uncanny valley vibe, whether it's a look of the face or the motion, everything just feels like, oh, shouldn't this be much more polished? Because we're looking at PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5 previews, and they look way better. So that we knew we had to address that very quickly. Um, and then we did Mutiny Air Zero, which was this sizzle thing for a feature film that's currently in development. Um, we got we realized quickly that we got away with that because it was it had a stylish look to it in terms of um it was mutants you know it's talking ducks you know talking pigs and fox and guns which sounds really cool and um and we realized okay well you get away with that too. but even that to a point people were like oh is that a video game cinematic from the game mutant year zero so 
we fought long and hard that the next thing we do, we've really got to address this because we don't kind of, we don't want to put our head, bury our head in the sand. Go, oh yeah, don't worry about it. We, you know, we'll just continue. And I started to look at a lot of stuff on Netflix and you start to see a pattern, like pretty much 95% of the animated shows on Netflix have got a kind of tune shaded look to it. And, um, even though a lot of them are CG, if you look at Altered Carbon Resleet or Ghost in the Shell SAC, you know, they, they're done in CG. Obviously, they're 3D camera moves and 3D characters, but they're shaded. Their look development, the look dev is all very tune shaded. So I think it was around last year, October, maybe, you know, I was pitching on a project for Sony PlayStation Productions on a video game IP, which I'm not allowed to mention, but um, I wanted to pitch them a CG anime show. And they're like, well, what does that look like? So I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me just give me a week to put together a little test. And I took some scenes from Mutant Year Zero and me and Andrea, my CG soup, we spent some time just see what it will be look like if we just put a tune shader across everything. So it was like a what you call a post-process effect, like a filter in Unreal Engine. But what it does, it tunifies your textures and adds black hard lines. Now it was very rough to test, but when I showed it to the executives over at Sony PlayStation Production, you know, um, Vince Cheng and Carter Swan, the two guys that run that place, they were like, oh my God, this is really cool. This is like, this is a full-on anime. This is, they never once said, oh, it looks like a video game or, or it feels like a game cinematic or even question facial expressions. As we know, anime is all about hyper expressions. You know, when someone does a punch, it's hyper expressive punches. You know, the, the physics are kind of like, there's no laws of physics in a way. You know, the faces are expressed super massive. Um, the eyes are huge. You know, someone smiles, they're smiling. Someone's crying, they're crying. And so, you know, I realized I didn't, and I didn't use live facial capture like I did with my previous projects. I was actually just animating expressions, hyper realistic, you know, hyper in a hyper reality way. And that's when I started to realize, oh my God, definitely if we're going to make an animated film or an animated TV show, you know, for executives and streamers and distributors to know what they're selling is it needs to feel relatable like an animated film. So we started to show that test of various distribution companies that, hey, you know, what do you think? They're, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is an animated show. You know, we can, we know what we're selling. As opposed to the previous projects where we found, yeah, it was hard for people to be able to put it in a slot. So they said, oh, this is an animated film because it felt like, oh, it was high-end CG or or is this a low budget version of Love, Death and Robots, which we didn't want to be in that in that category. So definitely we realized we got to stylize it. And we started spending time like looking, how would we animate? You know, at one point, Alex, we're thinking, do we need to animate in twos like you would have in traditional animation? But when we realized, oh my God, like that makes it look like a glitchy animation because you got CG. So we watched, you know, so I think, you know, this is a good excuse to watch a lot of anime, but I watch a lot of anime like over Christmas and, you know, I'm watching Pacific Rim at the moment, which is gorgeous, gorgeous work. And you tell there's some CG elements in it. In fact, a lot of it is CG. But you can also tell that the way the character's flat shaded and the way it's lit, you know, how would we do that in Unreal Engine? And that's something that me and Andrea spent so much R&D time. And, you know, to be honest with you, we only nailed that look like last week, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> we, we finally nailed it. Like, oh, we finally got it. And we have a feeling we're still going to be defining the look right to the end. But it really, you know, that look, the, the look that you saw, the, the, the hybrid CG anime look, that is probably what's able to get this movie seen and accepted as animation. And I think, you know, any advice I'll give anyone that wants to do an animated film is 
maybe try to create the more. Uh, here's the thing: the more stylized your animated film is, the more interesting people will find it. Like, oh, this is cool! Like you know, th- there's an animated sh- there's an animated miniseries on Amazon called Undone, and clearly it was live action rotoscoped, right? Kind of like Scanner Darkly. But the point is, it it felt fresh. It felt like, oh, this is unique. You know, this isn't trying to be a video game. You know, like there's been there's another show called The Liberator, um, which is about this World War II story. Um, who I know the producers really well, and they took a hybrid approach. They did CG, they did 2D, they did live action on blue screen, and they had this really cool process of kind of like making it feel like a graphic novel. And again, like you know. This is not stuff you would traditional go and pitch, but because it's fresh and new and feels unique as an animation, distribution companies, streamers, actors, anyone that's going to get involved, like, oh, we want to be part of this. So that's one of the lessons I learned was instead of trying to create beautiful CG cinematics, which would take frigging hundreds of hours to render, try and go with something that's stylized. And, you know, it could be simple things like just line art as opposed to tune shaded. But definitely the more stylish it is, the more unique your project's going to stand out. And the thing is, you can experiment in Unreal. That's the thing. You know, I, I used to think, oh, you can only create actual CG looking content out of Unreal. But no, you know, there's some amazing stuff being done by filmmakers and artists around the world where they're really pushing Unreal Engine to do stylistic things. And, and the work is in what you call the shaders. So the shaders basically a collective of like of textures and materials that creates the look. And you can really experiment. You don't have to create typical CG cinematics out of Unreal. You can create whatever you want. Um, you know, there's some video games out there that are so stylized that makes it so much more interesting to look at. So that's been my biggest, um, my biggest challenge for this project for sure. Mm. That's fascinating. And, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of like, I guess going back into the business side, you, you're definitely looking at how the product can fit into the market and, 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 you know, find a home there. Tell me about, tell me about the business side a bit more. So how, um, what's the what's the structure of this project? Have you got finances, yeah. or you know how, how does it work? And then and then you're looking. You said you mentioned about distribution. You talk a bit more about that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, obviously, Alex, a lot of this is kind of early doors. Yeah, but in terms of distribution, but in terms of financing, well, we're fully financed already. And what's been interesting how we've done this is we've kind of taken a similar approach to how I made my first feature, The Beyond, where, you know, I partly self-finance. So me and my producing partner, Paula Crickard, who we both set up a production company, Paula um, is an amazing producer because she splits her time between between Hasfilm, a company that we both set up back in 2018. And she's also head of post-production at New Boyana Studios, the studios that do movies like Expendables, Hitman's Bodyguard, and tons of other big movies like the Hellboy movie that recently came out or last year. Um, So she's got a really great deal where she can split her time. And it's great having someone like Paula because she comes from a business, business point of view in terms of she has great relationship with distribution companies. She used to work at Wild Bunch, the French distribution company Mm -hmm. responsible for bringing the studio ghibli stuff to to europe and the west so um yeah so we both kind of decided like last year when we realized we weren't making live action that we should make an animated film and what that project could be and we were developing a project called rift which was going to be my 
fourth or fifth live action film. And yeah, it's one of those scripts, Alex, that you read, you're like, that's freaking bonkers. There's like no way you're going to be able to shoot this live action unless you've got like $30 million or something to make it. So we're like, let's do this in animation because that gives it a reason. That's justification of why we should do this animation because it's literally unshootable in live action um, at a cost, right? And then we, me and Paula made, a, we made some good profits from the beyond. And instead of splashing it on like, you know, lavish stuff, you know, we each decided let's put some of our profits back into the company in terms of like productions. So we started to self-finance the early production of Rift. And then the lovely guys over at Epic came in and said, hey, you should apply for a mega grant. So we applied for a mega grant. Originally, it was going to be for Luna, but obviously like a year later, the application came through because the process is huge for the Epic mega grant, by the way. Mm. And um we change it to Rift. So that Epic Mega Grant, along with our internal financing, allowed us to kickstart the project to where we, in fact, that 10 minutes that you saw, Alex, was financed by myself and the Epic Mega Grant. There was no external financing at that point. Um, And it's great to be in that position because here's the thing. You're already in production. You're not relying on, you're not doing the whole song and dance that you usually do in independent filmmaking where you have to go to various distribution companies, get pre-sales, go talk to financiers, address financiers' notes for, for them to be happy with the script and do rewrites a million times. It's, it's, a, it's a long process, right? Whereas with this, we're like, no, we're making the film. And then when we go and talk to financiers and finance goes, oh, this looks cool. Like, yeah, you know, basically we're not going around with a script that, hey, can you make this film? Here's a script, here's a pitch deck or something. It's like, no, you know, we're in production and we're already in production. If you want to join this train, this train is moving hop on board and that's a fantastic position to be in i mean granted i know not a lot of people could be in this position but as an independent film producer it's a position that's fantastic to be in because like we're not waiting for for, for people to give us the green light we're we're green lighting this ourselves we're like hey you know we're in freaking lockdown right now so we may as well make something right and we may as well make something commercial so that by the time this lockdown is over we've got a product that's out um so and then as we did the 10 minutes, we start, even before the 10 minutes, we started showing screenshots of various financiers and test sequences. Other financiers start to come to, hey, you know, we'll put X amount of money in. And we start to build it up. And obviously, Paul has created this amazing, what you call a waterfall system. Um, it's a financial system in film financing where you, know, you have pockets of, of deferments, pockets of net points, and pockets for investors. So, you know, if an investor puts X amount, they get 15% premium or 20% premium on top of what they get back from their investment. So all of that is mapped out. And Paul is like the genius producer that, that handles all of that stuff. But having that independent, kind of like out of the box, breaking convention way of producing a movie is how we got this moving forward. And also we got a lot of tech sponsorship as well. So we've got people like Asus who have come on board as tech. We, we kind of put them down as financiers because they're giving us as tech sponsors, they're giving us like amazing Asus workstation to work on. 4K HDR monitors. All of this is attributed to value. There's value attached there. It's like up to like 10 grand's worth of value. That is part of the financing structure. Also, we would have had to fork out that 10 grand. You know, Reillusion, the people that make iClone and Character Creator Free, those guys have come on board, given us those tools, and we're talking about additional financing, those guys. And then we've got Western Digital. Yes, Western Digital, the hard drive company. They're providing us all of the SSD, the solid state drives, to run this 4K EXR 16-bit color depth you know, frames are extremely heavy. And again, that's like a good amount of a couple of thousand pounds involved of hardware. 
all of that helps build the financing structure for this film, which again, it's not your typical way of making a movie, but hey, we're in a position now where Hollywood is kind of rethinking its structure on how movies are being made. And let's face it, no one cares how your movie's made as long as you have a movie and the result is frigging good and it's marketable, right? So that's how we're able to do that. It's just think outside the box. And I think, Alex, I think the reason we're able to think this way is partly because of the way we are working in lockdown. You know, everyone is on lockdown or, you know, it's kind of like working remotely. A lot of the noise that you get when, you know, basically every year I'll go to LA five times a year. Okay. So you go to meetings and you're involved in all these meetings and you're talking to people. There's a lot of noise that's going around that kind of like clouds you a little bit in terms of like, oh, we've got to do it this way because, you know, this company is doing this or this producer is doing it as well. That is the way it's always been done. Whereas now that we're in lockdown, we're thinking, does it have to be this way? I mean, the big question of what if we did it like this? What if we, me and Paula put our own financing in to get this going? What if we spoke to, to Epic about a mega grant? What if we reach out to tech companies who are already fans of our work and get them involved in financing? What if that's the way we get this movie made? And that's essentially what we did. Well, as uh, as lockdown projects go has, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> You've done all right. You're listening to Future of Film Podcast, and I'm in conversation with filmmaker and innovator, Haz. If you want to find out more about Haz or any of the other guests on the show, you can do all of this at the home of Future of Film, futureoffilm.live. And in this section, I ask Haz whether he is constantly strategizing, hustling, thinking about his other filmmaking projects and his filmmaking career or at this time where he's just got his head down and focusing on completing a rift. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good question. And just just so you know, like, you know, if I thought that way, I don't think I'll be in a position to make a rift. So every filmmaker that you speak to, you know, like working filmmakers, you know, people that wear the producer's hat, the director's hat, you're constantly hustling. It's a console hustle, right? Like, even though I'm in production Rift, I've got like six different projects on the go, dude, in various incarnation of stages. Like we've got, we all got this project with PlayStation Productions, you know, which hasn't been announced yet. But yeah, I'm in development with those guys. I've got my managers are sending me scripts and log lines to look out for potential projects that will shoot 2022. You know, I'm constantly pitching on other projects. You know, I've, I'm having conversation with people like Netflix, for example, on their shows. And you're, you've got to have all of that stuff going. You can't just have all your eggs in one basket because, you know, things start and stop. There's, you know, they, they go and they don't go. And um, it's that's the film industry in general. Yes, you know, I'm breaking convention with Rift. And yes, I'm having a fucking whale of a time like animating this and having so much control and fun and defining my voice as a filmmaker without having to wait for someone to give me the green light. But at the same time, you gotta start thinking one year and one year ahead. Like, you know, I mean, for example, like Rift, we started thinking about doing an animated feature film like early last year when we realized, oh my God, this is like, you know, during battle suits, we're like, yo, we can make animated films this way. And we started getting that process going. So you always got to think like a year ahead. Uh, but also you kind of need to also keep in tune with the way the industry is going, the market's going. Like I would never have, me and Paula would never decide to put our own funding, our own finance into this project if we knew that 
if we didn't know about the market. So, you know, we, we spend a lot of time speaking to like distribution companies and say, you know, what are you guys looking for in terms of animation? And we look at the market in general. We look at the market trends. There's a guy called John Evershed. You should check him out. John Evershed does this white paper that he released like last year. And he's going to do a new one this year where it charts all of the animated content that's being purchased, all of the animated series and feature films that have been greenlit or in production and released and is going to be released having that data is very important for us to make us feel confident like okay we invested in something our time and money into something that we know is going to have a commercial output that we know that we don't just have one place to go to but we have 20 various places we can go to right that's very important um but the other thing also knowing that you know audiences are hungry for more animated content as well so all of all of that stuff is all part of the way you think as a filmmaker, yeah, a working filmmaker when you're constantly thinking about your next project. So definitely like there's a lot going on, but a lot of the time is just kind of like blocking your time out, you know, because obviously if I had it my way, I'd animate all day without any emails or anything, but mm-hmm. that's not the reality. You know, as a working filmmaker, you've got to be on top of your emails. You've got to be taking calls, doing podcasts like this, you know, all of this <laughs> helps, you know, getting your name out there so that, you know, now after this podcast, people go like, Hey, what's this Rift project? And they're going to go on IMDb Pro and go, Oh, it's this project. We're going to keep an eye on it. You just never know. Right. You know, like, look, let's face it. I would never had a relationship with Epic if it wasn't for the first time I, um, went on the Future of Film Summit and gave my keynote on me doing previs in, in Unreal. And then the people at Epic were like, hey, you know, we should talk more. So all of this stuff as a filmmaker, you got to balance between, you know, understanding the market, researching your market, being on top of like what's working, what isn't working, market trends as well, what audiences are looking for. Because your product is kind of, I don't want to use the word dictate, but your product is kind of shaped around a little bit of what distribution wants to sell. Right now, of course, you could go off and make something completely unique and amazing, and yeah, you, know, you build it, they will come kind of vibe. But yeah, you know, right now, you know, I'm in a position where I want to make content that is commercially viable so that more people watch it. Mm. And do you have in any way like a direct relationship with your audience? As do you have a do do you chat to your audience? Do you have yeah. a way to? to communicate with them. Yeah, I do. And yeah, I spend a lot of time doing that. It's like one of my biggest curses in production. Um, and, and I think it's great because, um, like Instagram, obviously I'm constantly posting stuff on my Instagram channel, which is has dazzle by the way. And, um, what's really cool is when I post stuff, people are like, like, hey, we're excited about this film or we've had fans of the beyond, like, you know, write long essays Like one person did this whole YouTube essay on everything about the beyond and like what what they loved about it, what they hated about it. And um, and these are genuine fans of people's. And I always respond, you know, whenever someone on, you know, whether it's Twitter or whether it's Instagram or Facebook, they go, hey, we love this movie. You know, what's your next thing? I make the time to respond because it doesn't take long to say, or even give a thumbs up or a thank you emoji. It doesn't take long to do that. But to have that connection with your audience goes a long way massively because they'll they'll tell their friends and their friends will tell their friends and it grows and you have a general audience base. Um, Also, you know, know, with my live action, my audience base, a lot of them were sci-fi, you know, sci-fi film nerds, you know, people that love science fiction. But now we're finding with the animation space, specifically last year when I did Battle Suits and Mutant Year Zero, which, you know, they both have sci-fi elements to it, we, we realized we we're tapping into the video game audience. So now a lot of the fans of our work 
come from the video game world. You know, they play video games. And the fact that we were using Razer laptops, you know, to do the, our first bunch of projects last year, which is essentially a gaming laptop. And now we've got Western Digital Black drives. And the black drives are really heavily used for gamers for their PlayStation 4 or Xbox to, you know, to stream their games off. And so we find that, oh my God, our audience base has grown massively. And I'm, I'm noticing that from the interaction of, I'm having with my audience for sure. I think it's important. I think it's part of the new generation of filmmakers that they interact with their audience. In fact, you know, even James Cameron a couple of years ago signed onto social media to do exactly that. Talk about the games side of things. Are you sure. Have you ever been uh, tempted to, to, to fuse the film and games uh, areas <laughs> into to, together in style, yes, but also yeah. thinking about how to bring interactivity into the, the film. Is that something you'd be excited to, to look yeah, into? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, I think it was like not last year, a year before, this is like during the early 2019, I was collaborating with a company called Control Media. Um, no, sorry, Control Movie, CTRL Movie. And great guy, great guys, um, Scott and Chaddy, these two guys in LA that run the company. And they basically shot live action, but they were just kind of like Bandersnatch in a way, where they shoot like, I don't know, like 200 page scripts or something, or 300 page scripts, and shoot various, and then you you have interactivity. And that, that blew, me, blew me away. And I remember talking to these guys about that, and I dived into that, you know, what it would be like to make a movie like that. And I have to say, it's a lot of flow charts from, <laughs> from what mm-hmm. I remember. Um, but yeah, even with Luna, you know, when we were starting to put together Luna, the, you know, the live action feature that we were supposed to shoot, you know, we were looking at a VR component of it because we were building the environments in CG anyway. We were doing previews in Unreal, and we're like, well, you know, if we're doing all this stuff in Unreal, why couldn't we have another team that we bring on that does the VR experience that not only adds an extension to the film, but maybe we can cover plot lines or plot areas that we only touched on in the film. The audience can experience that much further in the VR experience or the video game experience or the app experience. Uh, so yeah, you know, we're, we're looking at that for Rift. You know, absolutely. We're looking at Rift because, you know, this whole transmedia or transmedia sounds like an old term now, but yeah, you know, that transmedia term, you know, in terms of like bringing, you know, various experiences for the audience that extends the story. And I know like Jeff Gomez, the last person you spoke to on the podcast talks about that a lot, which is very true that, you know, if there's, as a film producer, if there's a way we can not only monetize the experience further from not just having just the film, but also a VR component or comic book or, or a mini video game or something, especially if we're using a video game engine to do that, it's really silly not to think about that for sure. Mm. Yeah, when I mean, you got the same assets, you got the same right, environment, exactly. you can just export it in another. Well, I don't know about way. just export it, but absolutely, you can get it out quicker. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you make it. You make it sound too easy. That's a problem. So. Um, yeah, look, we're coming. Coming. To, the time is raced on. Has so I wow. have. Uh, yeah. I need to need to ask you a couple more questions. So, sure. firstly. Um, what if, if you asked your advice for an emerging storyteller? Um, has you've given already given some great advice? I think thinking sure. about the business, thinking about your your, your strategy, um, looking at ways to to innovate and take control. But yeah, what would you what would you say to that person if they're, they're looking to create in this space? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, especially if we're going to say if you're going to be using like a um, a real-time game engine, for example, like you know, Unreal or Unity or whatever tool you want to use. You know, 
think about yeah if you have a storyteller that's never made a film before and you want to because now you have access to tools like unreal um think about your voice as a filmmaker think about the story you know yes it's great you know that we have all these tools and technology and you know things are much more quicker to do but there's one thing that's always key and that is the script i know this sounds very cliche that the script is king but to be honest it is very true like because like if we didn't we spent two years developing the script for rift and i'm glad we spent that long because it really shows when when i'm doing the animation i am not doing rewrites i'm not like cutting scenes out everything is going to screen so spend time on your script but at the same time you know if you're not a writer if you're if you're just a filmmaker want to make something just go ahead and make it you know like just do the way i would advise someone is the, the way i learned unreal engine which was i made a list of things that i wanted to do in unreal engine I, I didn't want to sit there and go through hundreds of hours of amazing tutorials that shows you everything on what Unreal Engine does. Like, to be honest, no one uses a tool software 100% of all its features, right? So um, so for me, as a, as a hands-on director, I don't want to be modeling, creating assets. It's because I, don't, I can't do that very well. I have amazing teams of people I collaborate with. But what I wanted to learn was, how do I bring a camera in? How do I animate that camera? How do I bring an asset into my scene? How do I light it? And how do I render it and put it into an edit? And I did that like over in a day of one, like one Saturday on a weekend. Once I did that and I did a couple of shots, really rough camera blocking and put it in an edit and you press play. Oh my God, that feeling you have like, <gasps> I've got like six shots playing one after another in a sequence. I kind of have a mini movie. Now, what if... I bring on facial animation. How do I do that? Learn how to do some facial animation. What if I want to bring in some like particle effects? How do I do that? And then you do that, you put your shot. And within a weekend, you've got like a one minute or 30 second sequence. That's the way I would advise everyone to start going if you want to go and start creating content. Don't, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm not saying don't, but I wouldn't advise someone to like think, oh, I'm going to spend, I know while doing all this great concept art and then I'm going to like try and find a bunch of people to do this stuff for me or like, or, or, or like, Oh my God, this is so technically like, you know, so much work or technically taxing for me. I can't do this. It's overwhelming. You know, everyone gets those anxiety as an artist. We all do. Right. So I would say like, just take it one step at a time. Even if you don't have a story, it doesn't matter. Just, just bring a character in there, bring a camera in and just start moving it around. Believe me, if you have that filmmaker juice in you, you'll get the same excitement as I do when I get a shot rendered out. And you can just start in simple terms and build it up as you approach. And you're going to find as you're building up things up, like, oh, I can have, I can, I can put a dragon in here. I can put flames in there. Oh my God, I can do this. You start to develop your ideas and your story based around what you can do and what you want to do in the tool set. That's the way I would approach it. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> and lastly, has the the question I ask all my guests on the Feature of Film <laughs> podcast, and you can take this any way you want it. You know, we're, we're very broad about what we mean about film, but uh, what what is the Future of Film? <laughs> I, to be honest with you, the Future of Film for me is giving more artistic control to the filmmakers. You know, I could reference something that recently came out, which is Zack Snyder's, Zack Snyder's um, Justice League, the Snyder Cut. And you watch that and you can tell that that has got artistic 
vision imprint on that. It isn't like a, a film that was built by committee. It is Zack Snyder's true vision. And I feel the future of film, we're giving whether it's tools, whether it's processes, whether it's industry standards, whether it's virtual production, all of, all of those things, we're giving control to the filmmaker to tell his or her story in a very um, in a very free way of doing it, not democratizing it in a way. That is the future of film, democratizing filmmaking, for sure. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Has, thank you for that um there's so much there i think people are going to get so much value out of it how can uh where can people find you how can people find out more about you sure you can definitely check out my work on um hasfilm.com h-a-z film.com um you could find me on twitter which is you know has underscore delon um you can also find me on instagram which is has dazzle h-a-z-d-a-double-z-l-e I didn't come up with that name, by the way. It was a nickname in visual effects. Long, that's for another podcast. Um, but also, like, you know, you can just, like, <laughs> this sounds very, like, 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 I don't know, kind of diva-ish, but you can just Google my name and you'll see a bunch of stuff and I'm accessible via there as well. But, um, yeah, please do follow me because I'm constantly posting behind the scenes of how this movie is being made. And that's another reason why being self self-produced means you don't have all these crazy embargoes. You can just post stuff and share as much as you can. So, yeah. I share a lot of behind the scenes, so hopefully um, anyone that follows it will either get inspired or motivated to do their own thing. So that was my conversation with Hazraf Hazdalal. And if you want to find out more about Haz or any of the other guests on the show, you can do all of that at futureoffilm.live. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening and I look forward to seeing you back on the podcast very soon.